Years ago, I studied Isaiah chapter 53 with a group of teenagers in a seminary class. As part of our experience, I gave students a small piece of cardstock with a silhouette of Jesus printed on it, upon which I asked them to write descriptions of the Savior they had found in their study. After class, as I was picking up the room, I noticed one card lying on the ground. I picked it up, turned it over, and read the words, Are you really there? That question has lodged in my mind and heart and has dramatically shaped the way I seek to study and teach the scriptures. In this episode, we have perhaps some of the best text in the Hebrew Bible to answer that exact question. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to our study this week, Isaiah chapters 50 through 57. Um, I got... I got captured um, by a a couple of stories in my newsfeed. You know how when you click on one, then you start to see others that are similar to it. Well, the one I originally clicked on was uh, Eli Manning, the football uh, quarterback for the New York Giants for a number of years, um, that had dressed up as a college student and went out for uh, walk-on tryouts at uh, Penn State uh, university football team. So he gets all dressed up. He's got this shaggy hair on and a uh, mask on. And he goes out to this, uh, you know, tryout. And um, of course, he's an NFL caliber quarterback, retired, but can still throw the ball pretty decently. And so he's impressing everyone. They're looking at him. And and then uh, the coach reveals uh, this, uh, I think his name was Chad in that that scene, but reveals, well, Chad, you did a great job, but you can't be on the team because you're ineligible because you're not a college student. Then he reveals and everyone's happy. And I clicked on that one, watched that little video. And then I also saw a similar one with Jimmer Fredette, the BYU basketball uh, guard from years ago that was famous for his three-point shots, did a similar thing in the BYU basketball uh, tryouts. And uh, I know this is not com- or not just to those two. I've, I know there are other videos or other scenarios like that around, but it was fun to watch. But it got me thinking about a question that I have had mulling around in my head for years, which is, if Jesus Christ were to appear for his second coming, of course, we have prophetic description of how he will appear and he'll be dressed in red. But let's just say, for the sake of this question, let's say that his second coming was similar to his first coming. Not that he will be born again and grow, but let's say that he comes uh, unobtrusively, meaning as Isaiah describes in the block of scripture we're reading this week, this is Isaiah 53, verse 2, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So let's just say for the sake of question that Jesus were to appear and he didn't look like the pictures that you see. Uh, he didn't match any visual depiction you had had of him. Uh, look, he doesn't come in long hair. He doesn't have a beard. He's not wearing a robe and sandals. Let's say he's got hair and clothes and mannerisms fitting the time in which he comes. Would you be able to recognize him? 
would I be able to recognize him? If he didn't look like the pictures, would I be able to recognize him if he talked with me, if he spent time with me, um, if I watched him interact with others, would I be able to tell him for who he is? And that question, I think, is at the heart of what I want to study with you in Isaiah chapters 50 through 57. Um, Of course, as always, I'll give you a couple of ideas that I hope will set you up for a fabulous study of what is some of the richest text that we have, not just in the Hebrew Bible, but in all Scripture. And I think today's study will help uh, with that question, uh, help us to better recognize the Savior. So to start, I want to actually point us to a little bit of training that I got from a colleague of mine that I thought was just beautiful. He was training seminary teachers on how to better center their their students' scripture study experience, so their lessons, on Christ. We say that a lot, that we want to focus on Christ in our teaching. The new Gospel Teaching and Learning Handbook uh, has a first section in it that is all about centering on Christ, and in that it says that we should teach about Christ no matter what we are teaching and help students come to Christ. And I've heard people through the years complain about that and say, well, I can't I can't talk about Jesus in every single lesson. It'll get boring, right? I need to add some variety. And I understand where they're coming from. It This is not the same thing as saying every single lesson has to be uh, Jesus in Galilee doing or saying, etc. Even though I push back a little bit that you can't spend every single lesson there because I think you could. It is that we connect everything we study back to the source of the thing we're studying. Faith is not a gospel principle. Faith in Jesus Christ is a gospel principle. Repentance alone is not a a full gospel principle. Changing our mind and heart because of the teachings of Christ and to better emulate Christ is a full and complete gospel principle. And so when we talk about centering our study on Christ, we're not talking about going to actual accounts of his ministry, though that is always helpful. It's connecting everything back to him. And my colleague trained his the, the teachers that he was working with to do three things, at least one of the three things, which I thought was just beautiful, all based on invitations that Christ gives to individuals in his ministry. So one is uh, remember me. This is a mental exercise where we ask ourselves this question, what truths about or from the Lord will help me to learn about or better remember him in my life? Again, what truths about or from the Lord will help me to either learn about or better remember him in my life? Um, That's, again, a mental exercise. We're looking for truths that we're going to write down, mark, notate, and then remember and incorporate into our our perspective of our life and, and the world that we live in and, and help us to remember the Savior. The second way that we can center our study on Christ is by following his invitation to come unto him. This is an emotional exercise where we ask ourselves the question, what descriptions of or sayings from the Lord make me want to come or stay close to him? Again, what descriptions of or sayings from the Lord make me want to come or stay close to him? This is where, as I'm reading, I'm paying attention to the way things make me feel. And when I come across a certain verse or a phrase that triggers an emotional response from me, a tenderness or an excitement or a peace, I make note of that and pay specific attention to how that emotion 
draws me closer to Christ. It makes me want to be more with him. The third way we can center our study on Christ is by following his invitation to follow him. This is a physical exercise, or at least it will translate into a physical exercise, where we ask ourselves the question, what teaching or example from the Lord provides a model for how I should act? We often, I think, in our scripture study, fail to get to this level of study. We understand what it means to learn from the scriptures. I now know something that I didn't know before. And I think we might even understand what it means to feel something as we're studying the scriptures. I feel the confirmation of the Spirit, bearing testimony of truth. I feel peace um, and excitement when I'm reading. But I don't know if we often turn to the scriptures for practical guidance. When I have a question about what I should do, do I turn to the scripture and say, well, let me think, is there someone in the scriptures, hopefully, that is emulating Christ, or maybe it's Christ himself, that was in a similar situation? And if I can go read what he did or said, I can see a model for what I should do or say. Now, what I want to do this week is I want to to invite you to ask those three questions. What helps me remember him? What helps me come unto him? What helps me follow him? As I read for you some excerpts from Isaiah, a little bit different from what we've done in previous episodes, I want to provide you the reading. And I hope that in the five to 10 minutes it takes me to read, if you're asking those questions, you will have the beginnings of some insights. And then as you revisit those in your own personal study, more truth will be unfolded to you. Before I do that, I just want to point out three things that make this block of scripture, I think, prime for this kind of a study. You can do this with any block of scripture, but this week is just fabulous. Three reasons why. Number one, Isaiah chapters 50 through 59, really 49 through 57, sorry, 50 through 57, 49 through 57, Isaiah 49 through 57, if I can borrow from last week, is the narrative climax of Isaiah's writings. Up to this point, Isaiah has been talking about, at the beginning, first, what got his people into trouble. Then, in the last couple of chapters, what that trouble felt like, what bondage and captivity feels like. And now, he talks about the freedom that comes to them from the Lord who will save them. And so, this is intended to be the climax of the book of Isaiah. The second reason this is a great block is... Isaiah writes four what are called servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and three of them are in our study, that, well, two of them technically, but if I can borrow Isaiah 49, three of them are in the study this week. These four servant songs are places where Isaiah writes messianically, meaning he writes uh, in the voice of the Lord, and that voice of the Lord gives us description for who this Messiah is that's coming. So Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, Isaiah 49, 1 through 13, Isaiah 50, 4 through 9, and of course the longest and most famous, Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of 53. That's the one that we probably know the best. And those are the sections I'm actually going to read here in just a bit. The final reason, though, that this is such a prime place for us to look for, center our study on Christ, is because these sections were primarily important to Book of Mormon writers uh, and Book of Mormon prophets. In fact, I think, this is just my guess, but I think Nephi's uh, favorite scripture comes from this block of scripture this week. Isaiah 49 
through 54 inclusive. So just about every single verse from the end of Isaiah 49 to the end of Isaiah 54 is quoted either in part or in full in the Book of Mormon, sometimes multiple times. For example, uh, Nephi quotes Isaiah chapter 49 in 1 Nephi chapter 21. And specifically, verses 22 through 26, which I want to read because I think these are Nephi's favorite verses, and I think they are incredibly powerful for us too. This is where he says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. And they shall bow down to thee with their face towards the earth, and lick up the dust off thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait upon me. This is where the prophecy is that in a coming day, the restoration of Israel will take place. It will involve Gentiles who will be uh, nursing fathers and nursing mothers to these restored Israelites, which is what Nephi is. He's a scattered Israelite, and so he glories in the fact that Isaiah's prophesying there will be a day of restoration. Um, this block of scripture, and there's more to it there, but uh, if you go to 2 Nephi chapter 6, Jacob, the brother of Nephi, starts to speak, and he says in his writings that Nephi tells him, uh, gives him essentially an assignment, a sacrament talk assignment, and he tells him to quote these exact verses, which Jacob does with some commentary, and then Jacob goes on to quote chapters 50 through 52 verse 2 in 2 Nephi 7 through 8. So these chapters are hugely important. Then uh, Abinadi, when he's in front of the priests of King Noah, they pose to him a question based on Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. They want him to explain the phrase that is, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him that proclaim peace. Uh, kind of a little bit in sarcastic accusation. Here, here Abinadi is coming among the people and proclaiming their, their wickedness and their sins. And they're saying, wait a minute, doesn't the prophet tell us that we should proclaim peace? And so Isaiah t or Abinadi takes that responds to it, quotes all of Isaiah 53 to them, and then goes back to that verse and does kind of a mic drop where he tells them, see, I have proclaimed to you peace. This is the peace that's coming. This Lord, this Messiah that you have turned completely away from, he is the Prince of Peace that's coming. So that's Abinadi's message back to them. And then Jesus himself quotes these scriptures. Uh, he quotes Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 16 and 3 Nephi 20. And then he quotes Isaiah 54, the entire chapter in 3 Nephi 22. Of course, these are beautiful chapters that describe the salvation of the Lord in the coming day, how God will restore uh, and save his people and how he'll gather Israel. This is where it talks about the the enlarging of the tent and the stretching forth of the curtains and the strengthening of the stakes and that God hasn't forgotten his people but will bring them, even though they're tossed and with tempests and not comforted, he will establish them and restore them and bring them peace. Jesus quotes those verses to the, to, uh, the Nephites when he visits them. So uh, this is, if I haven't convinced you by now, I don't know how else I can. These chapters are hugely crucial in the narrative of salvation, not only in the Old Testament. They are also quoted quite frequently in the New Testament by writers and authors. Many uh, of the gospel writers will point to descriptions in here because they see Jesus fulfilling them. Paul will quote from them. 
but they're also important to these Book of Mormon authors and so should be of that same importance to us. So with all of that, ask yourself these three questions. First, to help you remember him. What truths about or from the Lord will help me learn about or better remember him in my life? To help you come unto him, what descriptions of or sayings from the Lord make me want to come or stay close to him? And then to help you follow him, what teaching or example from the Lord provides a model for how I should act? I'm going to read two of the servant songs that are found in our block this week. I, I'm resisting the temptation to go back and read Isaiah 49 because that was last week and we talked a little bit about it already, but that would be a great thing to, sto- uh, to throw in your study as well. So this is Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 9. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore I shall not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Isaiah 52, the fourth servant song, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, hopefully, as I read, you had a couple of places where you want something, where you found something that helps you remember him, something you want to remember about him, something that makes you want to come unto him and feel closer to him, or something that you want to follow in his example. I'll give you just a few that stood out to me, just as example. First of all, um, to remember him. At the beginning of chapter 50, it's really helpful actually to read uh, the addition Jacob puts at the beginning of this from Isaiah, because he adds just a little bit. Um, from Jacob in 2 Nephi 7, he writes, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, Have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? And then he quotes Isaiah 50, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom have I put thee away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgression is your mother put away. In other words, the problem that people are facing is that they feel abandoned by God. They feel put away. And Isaiah is reminding them, it is for your own sins and transgressions that you feel this way. God doesn't leave you. You leave him, and you have left him. And so uh, it makes sense then in chapter 51, verse 12, when Isaiah writes, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that should be afraid of man that should die, or the son of man which shall be made as grass? And then this, verse 13, And forgettest the Lord thy maker that hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. In other words, the people have begun to forget God, not because he has removed himself from them, but because they've removed themselves from him. And as I read that, I thought, boy, that happens to me too, not out of deliberate agency to pull myself away. I just get so swamped with the other things that are part of life that I too often forget. And so as I was wrestling with this, I asked myself, what is it then in these chapters that I want to remember about the Lord, maybe better than I usually do? And the beginning of the answer for me came in verse 14 in chapter 51, the very next verse. says, The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. The New International Version translation, I, I actually like better here. It says, instead of the captive exile, it says, The cowering prisoner shall soon be set free. And I love that promise, which in my low times I want to remember, that the Lord is with me and can free me. But I also want to remember that he's with me in all times, not just my dark moments. And so in chapter 54, I love these verses. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Now, of course, that's a symbolic language. God doesn't hide his face. He doesn't forget us or forsake us. This is the same thing Isaiah is saying. We have felt like God has hidden his face from us or that he's forsaken us because of the sins that we've sold ourselves for. But I love the promise that he gives here in verse 9. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, 
For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. That means at all times God is thinking of and aware of us. And I want to remember that, that he is consciously always thinking about me. To help me better come to Christ, uh, I go back to that verse we read in chapter 50, verse 1, the idea that we have sold ourselves. In chapter 52, 3, Isaiah brings that idea up again, and he makes a really interesting statement that if we don't pause, we might just take for granted. He says in verse 3, For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. Which is interesting because he's using a money symbol to describe their captivity. And then he's very deliberately saying, but you're not going to be redeemed through money. What this should have conveyed to, to those that were reading this text is, okay, we got ourselves into this bondage because we were turning to warring nations and trying to make alliances and trying to fight with them. And it was, it was sword and blood and alliances that got us into this mess, which means it's not going to be sword or blood or alliances that are going to get us out of captivity. It's got to be something different. And what is it that's going to be different? Well, it is the Messiah described in these chapters. But as I already read, he's not the one that's going to come with sword and shield uh, as they may have expected. As it says in 52 verse 14, Many were astonished at thee because his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Meaning this servant that's going to come is not going to be the glowing king that you might expect. He's going to be the humble shepherd of Nazareth that comes and conquers sin and death. The only way that you can conquer sin and death, not with sword or army, but with love and divinity. And so I love in chapter 51, verse 22, this is the verse that triggers my heart. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the Lord and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. Uh, there's a quote I love from Elder Holland uh, from one of his books that he wrote years ago. But to me, it helps clarify the role of Christ in mercy and justice. We often paint justice and mercy as opposites. And sometimes erroneously, I've heard it said, well, Heavenly Father is just and Jesus then is merciful. He's the way that the Father can be merciful, which is not accurate. The Father is both just and merciful, just as the Son is both just and merciful. So this verse, this pleading explains to me how Jesus can be just and merciful. How's he going to free his people? Well, he is going to suffer everything that they suffer. He's going to live among them as this man with a marred vision so that he can perfectly plead their case. Elder Holland's quote is this, Christ is not only a mediator, but also a judge. It is in that role of judge that we may find even greater meaning in the expression, God himself will come down to redeem his people. It is as the judge in that great courtroom in heaven unwilling to ask anyone but himself to bear the burdens of the guilty people standing in the dock, takes off his judicial robes and comes down to earth to bear their stripes personally. Christ as merciful judge is as beautiful and wonderful a concept as that of Christ as counselor, mediator, and advocate. 
meaning it is an incorrect picture to say that Christ is pleading with the Father or, or pleading on the opposite side from the Father for our freedom. He is the judge and he is also our mediator. He is the one that's pleading his case or pleading our case. He is the just one and he's also the merciful one. And that draws me so much closer to him. Lastly, what would help me follow Christ? Uh, I love Isaiah 55. We all love verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. But I love the beginning of that because I think this is a thought that is very different that uh, from, from us to the Lord. 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but I think one of the thoughts that is very different between us and God is that we uh, get tangled up in the thick of thin things, and we end up spending our money and our labor for things which are of no worth. And the Lord's invitation to us is to come, and without money, because it doesn't cost money, to focus on the fat things that bring us spiritual uh, safety and, and satisfaction, as it says in verse 3, that help our soul to live. Now, those are just my answers. You'll have your own as you study, but I hope that this experience helps you to have a powerful chance to learn more about, come closer to, and be better able to follow the Lord. Thank you so much for studying with me this week. We will see you next week.